2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions which you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. I want to invite you to spend three weeks with me, three Sundays, studying the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. I've divided it into six passages Three for Sunday morning and three for Sunday evening. And so if you want to work your way through this book systematically with me, that will mean we begin with verses 1 to 10, for example, this morning, and we'll finish chapter 1 tonight. And then next Sunday we'll begin chapter 2, and next Sunday night we'll finish chapter 2, Lord willing. And so on for three Sundays. It's a short book and full of Magnificent truth. I hope that many of you will uh, read it several times, and maybe one or two or a dozen of you will memorize this book. If you've never memorized a book of the Bible, what a treat is in store for you if the Lord ever lays it upon your heart to make such an effort. You'll never be the same again. Some of you perhaps make a notebook, jot down questions. I hope there'll be time in the evening to ask some of those, and uh, strive above all to apply it to your life and pray with me that the Lord would use his word to quicken us and awaken his people and make us what we need to be for this city and for the world. Well, we don't have much time and we have a big task in front of us. We can't begin to explore every detail of the text, so we'll plunge right into some of the things that I think are are most important. And we'll go right to verse 1. And talk not so much about who wrote it, but first of all, to whom it was written and in whom they are. Let's read verse 1, the second line of it there. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first question I have when I read this is, what does it mean to be in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Now, as I was meditating on this, 
there are so many different ways to go about answering a question like that. I'm going to answer it in the way that requires the least external input. So here's what I did. I simply asked, well now, let's be more specific. Who are we in here? Well, God or the deity is described in two ways. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I rephrase the question, what does it mean to be in a father? And what does it mean to be in a Lord? And that led me to another question. This is, by the way, I'm just taking you through what I call meditation. This is meditation that I'm just reproducing here. Another question came to mind. What characterizes a father? What do you think of when you think about a father? And I thought of things like care and protection and sustenance and provision and perhaps discipline. And then I said, okay, I think I've got it. To be in a father means to be in his care. Under his provision and, and, and sustaining power. And then I went on to the lordship of Jesus. What does it mean that he is Lord? What does Lord connote? Well, Lord connotes authority and ownership and leadership. And so I answered the question, what does it mean to be in a Lord like this? It means to be in his charge. Under his authority. In his ownership. And so right here, in this very first verse, Paul designates us, or the Thessalonians, the church, in a way that tells us we are a family in the care of a father, and we are a servanthood under the leadership and ownership of a Lord. And he's not throwing words away here. These meet two fundamental needs that every one of us in this room has. Let me just tell you what they are, and, and you'll agree immediately, I think. There are two needs that we have, and these meet them. The first need that everybody in this room has is the need for help or rescue. In many ways, spiritually, we are done for. We're sinners under the wrath of a holy God. We need rescue, help. Physically and mentally, we're so weak. We're so like little children. We hardly know how to get through a day with all of its multiple decisions, let alone how to make it through the judgment day into eternity. We need help. We need a father. We're just so ignorant, like little children. We need a father. And here we've got a father offered to us before the, the book even gets started, as it were. Well, here's the second need that we have. Not just for rescue and help and safety under the care of a father. None of us would be satisfied with that in the long run. I really believe that. You might think, if I just had that, if I just had the contentment and the safety and the care of a real father, that's all I need. And that isn't all you need. Because in your best moments, you know safety doesn't satisfy your heart. Purpose and meaning satisfies your heart once safety is in place. You need something to live for, a cause, a mission, a work to do. 
That's why men were put on the earth to do a meaningful work. Well, we've got a Lord to guide us. A Lord as a champion and a leader. And so these two things, God, our Father, to care for us, the Lord Jesus to be our champion, our leader, our guide, to fight with us our battles and give us a meaningful work to do in the world, in His service, they meet two of the most fundamental needs of our lives. And so right here in verse 1, at the very start, we are described as a people who are a family, in the care of a father, and who are a um, a workforce and a servanthood and an army behind a champion, a leader, a Lord, Jesus Christ. And I want you to take rest from the one this morning, and I want you to take courage and meaning from the second this morning. And all the more so as we move to verse 2 and see what's coming. Grace to you and peace. From who? Surprise. Nobody knew. God the Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. He repeats the same two. Now what's new here? What are we to learn from this salutation? We're to learn that in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus, all is grace. The care that comes from God comes from grace. The commands that come from the Lord come from grace. Don't ever play off commands from the Lord against the care of a father. Both come from grace. Now, if you had the grace to know that I've got a, an omnipotent father who cares for me, I've got an omnipotent Lord who leads and guides and gives me meaning, and everything they do to me comes from grace, what would be the condition of your heart? Peace, which is what the text says, isn't it? Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think that the peace here is merely individual, though that's precious beyond words. It's also corporate. Here we are, maybe 350, 300 here, I'm not sure. It's us at peace with each other. So I'm going to draw out from this verse, this lesson for Bethlehem. The key to living at peace as a church is to set our mind's attention and our heart's affection on the care of our Father, the leadership of our Lord, and the truth that it is all of grace. And as soon as a church takes its eyes and its hearts off of the sweetness of the fatherhood of God, off of the sovereignty of the lordship of Jesus, and off of the truth that it is all of grace, that church has lost its peace. No matter what kind of human contrivances may be developed to keep peace, it will vanish and there will be an undercurrent of dissension and strife. If we are going to have peace, especially this fall as we move into what will probably be major decisions about the future, the key doesn't have anything to do with buildings. It has everything to do with God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace to you. Peace 
through God the Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope in years to come, I'll be able to say with you about Bethlehem, verses 3 and 4. Let's read them. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, as is fitting because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions which you are enduring. Now, there are four truths in those two verses, at least, a lot more than four, but four brief ones that I want to mention. Number one, faith and love are the essence and sum of the Christian life. Faith towards God and love for one another are the essence and sum of the Christian life. I think that's why Paul chooses them to give thanks for in verse 3. Your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Faith is the vertical response to grace. And love for one another is the horizontal response to grace, isn't it? Do you think it's coincidental that these two features of the Christian life correspond so perfectly with the two designations of deity in verses 1 and 2? We have a father whose care is to be trusted in faith. And we have a Lord whose leadership is to be followed in love. Well, I don't know if it's a coincidence. Whether or not it's a coincidence, the truth is there. Namely, that love and faith are the essence and sum of the Christian life. And so the barometer of maturity at this church, Bethlehem, is whether or not you and I have a strong faith in God our Father and a strong, deep love for each other in response to the command of our Lord Jesus. Truth number two from these two verses. Growth is beautiful. Paul loves growth in his people. The text says not that he thanks God for their faith, He thanks God that their faith is growing abundantly and that their love is increasing. In other words, Paul loves progress. Paul loves advance. He loves growth. I think that's a comfort and I think it's a rebuke. Here's why it's a comfort. It's a comfort to me because I know I haven't arrived at the place of faith and love that I ought to be at. And so I find it encouraging and comforting when the Bible says not that the Christian life is instantaneous perfection, but is progress, is growth, is steady advancement. But then I feel it as a rebuke as well because I know good and well I've missed opportunities for growth. Not only have I skirted situations in which I could have grown, but in some trying situations I have resisted the very lessons 
God was wanting to teach me. And so I feel rebuked by this word about growth as well. Lesson number three from these two verses. Let us not take credit ourselves for any advances in faith or love. Let us give all the credit to God. And I get that from simply observing whom Paul thanks for the growth of the faith and love of these believers. He doesn't thank them. He thanks God. And he says it's fitting to thank God. You see that in verse 3? It's fitting that we thank God. Now, why is it fitting to thank God for your faith? Isn't that your work? Don't you get credit for your faith? No. God gets credit for your faith. It says so plainly in Philippians 1, it is given to us to believe and to suffer for his name. And so, let us beware of limiting that for which we give God the glory. Now, this is an urgent reminder of the importance of growth. Because if growth is from God, and if God commands growth, and we're not growing, then there are two possibilities. Number one, we're not Christians. We have deceived ourselves in thinking that we were once converted, and really we have only been following a social religious regime, and the Holy Spirit does not dwell within and is not, therefore, bearing the fruits. That's the possibility that's very real. There are many deceived professing Christians in the church. The other possibility is that we are grieving the Holy Spirit with a deep and temporary rebellion. So deep that omnipotent God is suffering himself to be resisted in his sanctifying work. Now, neither of those is attractive options. That's why growth is utterly crucial. We live in a river of fallen humanity. If we are not swimming upstream and forward, we are not standing still in the stream. We are being swept towards destruction. Growth is essential, not optional. That's the third lesson here. And the fourth lesson is growth in faith and love can flourish in persecution and afflictions. See verse 4, Paul boasts to the other churches about the Thessalonians and the thing in which he boasts is that they are enduring and they are having faith in persecutions and afflictions, and that's what he's so excited about. Now, we come to something here that is very troubling to many people, very profound and heavy and utterly crucial practically for our living with suffering, 
and are living with affliction and persecution. I want to show it to you and then show you how the rest of the verses through verse 10 deal with this issue. Paul goes on to say in verse 5 that not only can faith and love flourish in persecution, but this is precisely God's design for persecution. And with that, he raises an issue that he must deal with in some detail in the following verses. After mentioning endurance and persecution and affliction in verse uh, 4, he says in verse 5, this, and the this refers back to the persecution and the affliction and their experience in it. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And I take that to mean that the affliction and the persecution Christians are experiencing is God's judgment. And it is right and just and good. God is so much in control of things that even the hostile, sinful acts of unbelievers are part of his holy judgment. This is one of these great passages of Scripture that shows that when God governs the acts of sinful men, he is not a sinner. Let me say that again, because you've got to grasp that. It is utterly crucial for making sense out of the Scriptures. When God governs the acts of sinful men, puts them to his holy purposes, he is not thereby a sinner. The persecution of Christians is sin, is it not? The persecution of Christians is sin. But in the wise and sovereign and holy hands of God, it becomes the expression and proof of righteous judgment. As an expression of man's unbelief, persecution is sin. As an expression of God's judgment, it is righteous. And the rest of our text is Paul's effort to demonstrate and explain that truth. And it needs some, because it isn't easy on the face of it to see how it can be a just and righteous judgment when persecutions and afflictions befall his chosen and beloved children. Well, let's look at it. There are three arguments in these verses as to why it is holy and righteous and good for God to ordain that his people suffer through the hands of unbelieving men. Number one. It is a design of God to fit unholy people for a holy kingdom. Notice verse 5. This persecution, affliction, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that, here it is, that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which 
you are suffering. God's design is not to punish his children, but to purify them. The way gold is purified through fire, as 1 Peter 1 verse 7 says. It doesn't mean, by the way, when he says that through persecution they will be made worthy. It doesn't mean made deserving. It means made fit. There is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. Do you believe that? Hebrews 12, 14. There is an attained holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And 1 Peter, 2 Thessalonians, Romans 8, and Hebrews 12 all teach that one of the primary means by which God takes out the chaff, puts in the necessary holiness, is through suffering. And therefore, I have so little patience and so little sympathy with the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrines of our day. I think if God had a dollar, he'd pay one cent for your health and 99 cents for your holiness in this life. If you measure the priorities of God on a scale from the earth to the clouds, holiness would touch the clouds and health would be an inch off the ground in this life. And all I'm saying in that is that holiness is important. Vastly, vastly important. And I believe with all my heart that we ought to pray for healing to one another. But let's keep our priorities straight. God gives two cents for your comfort in this life if He can make you holy by your suffering. Because He loves you. You know... We have not gotten beyond verses 1 and 2. God, our Father, what does it say about the fatherhood of God in Hebrews 12? He chastises every son whom He loves and disciplines every child. Paul's first defense for why it is just and right to ordain the suffering of his people through the persecution of unbelievers is that he is thereby fitting them for the kingdom, giving them holiness. Second argument and justification for God's ways in this passage is this. One objection to raise would be, wait a minute, look at this situation. This is incredibly unjust. These people are innocent. They love you. They trust you. They have taken their lives in their hands and they are being abused, mistreated by these unbelievers. And you say, this is your righteous judgment. Where's the righteousness? God's answer, secondly, is every person who pursues or perseveres in unbelief will have the tables turned someday and the afflictor will become the afflicted and every wrong will be righted at the last day at the coming of the Son of Man 
in flaming fire. Look at verse 6. Since, continuing the justification for God's rightness in this activity, since, indeed, God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's answer number two. Every injustice that looks like the wicked are prospering will be rectified. The afflictor will become the afflicted at the judgment day. And no one will be able to say that in the end, God has not done justice by his people and by the world. It is a grave injustice when evil men persecute Christians. Was it not a grave injustice when Jesus was crucified? Who ruled in that moment? It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. And so God rules in every moment when his people are sawn asunder, beheaded, lashed, shipwrecked, stoned, imprisoned, and get sick with infection and die. God reigns at that moment. And justice will be done. Because the afflictor, if he does not repent and have his sins covered by the blood of Jesus, will have his sins punished eternally in hell forever and ever. And the third answer to the justice of God in ordaining the suffering of his people through the persecution of unbelievers is this. Those who are suffering will be rewarded with infinite joy and rest. Verse 7. It continues verse 6, so let's pick it up so that we can read it in its flow God deems it just not only to repay those who afflict you, but also to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You see, that's the other side of the coin. Not only will afflictors become the afflicted, but now the afflicted will be granted rest and relief forever and ever in the glory and the presence of their Lord. So Paul covers his basis when he makes this tremendously powerful statement that the persecution and affliction of the Thessalonians is a sign and token and evidence and proof of the righteous judgment of God. And his argument is threefold, and I close with a summary. First, it is righteous because it is a holy means of fitting unholy people for a holy kingdom. God wants your holiness in this life and his com your comfort. It is not essential. It is simply not essential. That's what's wrong with most TV religion. Holiness is all. Whether I live or die, whether I'm sick or healthy, whether I'm persecuted or safe, holiness is all. Readiness for the kingdom 
And the second argument is those who persecute and look like they're prospering in their wickedness will be judged. And he repeats this principle in verses 8 and 9. Let's read it. The Lord will inflict vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the second argument is the tables will be turned. And the third argument is the opposite, namely his suffering people will be rewarded with stupendous privileges. And he mentions it again in verse 10. Let's read it as the benefit to which we look. The Lord will come on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. No more suffering. The kingdom has come. The church has been made worthy through her trials and afflictions and persecutions. The enemies of truth are swept away in eternal judgment. The saints are given everlasting rest and Jesus Christ is glorified on the throne of his righteousness forever and ever and ever. Amen.